You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. So we're talking this morning, this new series, uh, Constructive Church. How many of you have come across this term, deconstruction, before? It's one of those terms that's kind of been bandied around quite a lot in the church over the last kind of 10, 15 years or so. It basically just means the, the process where people rethink what they've been told about Christianity, about the Bible, about what it means to follow Jesus. That's all it really is. Um, there have been loads of authors over the last 10 or 15 years or so who have popularized this phrase. One is Rachel Held Evans. She wrote a book called Searching for Sunday, which basically is a bit of a a personal journey through deconstruction. She was one of those who grew up in the the church in the States and kind of got to adulthood and didn't really know what she thought about it anymore. So she wrote all this stuff in this book, Searching for Sunday. Um, There are loads of other authors, Pete Enns, Brian Zand, Brian McLaren, people that we talk about and quote quite often here who have said a lot of this stuff around deconstruction. Um, But nothing is really particularly new, is it? There was something about 20 or something years ago, this book, which you probably can't see because it's very nice and sunny outside, I think it's probably better that it's sunny and you can't see the PowerPoint than if it was raining outside and you could see the PowerPoint. I think I would take that if I was choosing. But that's just the cover of a book called The Post-Evangelical by a guy called Dave Tomlinson. And that's, oh, it's like even the last century, I think, now. It feels like quite a long time ago. Anybody read this book? It was kind of like a bit like deconstruction before deconstruction was a thing, really. It was like, what do we do after evangelicalism? And in there, he quotes from a French philosopher, Paul Ricoeur, and he said that when interpreting a text like the Bible, there is a first innocence, which is just wide-eyed acceptance. You take it exactly how it is. And then there's a movement to what the philosopher calls critical distance, where you take a step back from the text and you ask some questions of it. You start to interrogate the Bible. What do I actually think about all of this? And then, Ricoeur says, there's a second innocence where you reconnect with the Bible, with that text. And I love this quote from Paul Ricoeur. It says, beyond the desert of criticism, we wish to be called again. We take that step away from something, but even as we've taken the step away, even as we have deconstructed our faith or whatever label you want to put on it, beyond the desert of criticism, we wish to be called again. We want to come back to something. And for me, that's where post-deconstruction comes in. Lots of people talk about being in a post-deconstruction phase. They've read the Rachel Held Evans book. They've done all of these things. They've deconstructed all of those old faiths, all those old beliefs that they used to have. And now they're at a point where they think, well, what's next? And I think there's been an increasing number of books of writers over the last few years who are starting to explore this post-deconstruction, as they call it. But most of the things that I've read, at least, have been around me as an individual, my personal faith. How do I move on and start to construct something else after I have deconstructed? What I've not seen a lot about is what that looks like for a church congregation for a community that still meets together on a Sunday morning? How do we use the lessons of deconstruction to build something new, 
to build a congregation, a church community, whatever language you want to use that meets together on a Sunday, but has learned some of those lessons of deconstruction. And so that's what we're going to look at over the next four Sundays. We're going to look at constructive evangelism, constructive discipleship, constructive prayer, all these words that if you've been around a church for a long time, you might have heard and you might not have particularly positive ideas about maybe now. And this morning, I'm going to look at constructive music. How do we address the traditional elements of a church service after deconstruction? I think we need to ask these questions all the time. We need to talk about this stuff all the time, the stuff that we do here on a Sunday. We need to continually ask questions of it. Otherwise, we run the risk of becoming like Ashram's cat. Has anyone heard this story before? There was a cat in, um, uh, there was a cat in the Ashram. It should be not Ashram's cat, that's a typo. And there was a guru who used to speak in the Ashram. And there was a cat that used to come in and run around. And while the guru would start this worship service, we try and explain all these wonderful things. This cat would run around and would distract everybody. So one day, what they decided to do was, right, we're going to tie that cat up before the beginning of the service so that it won't distract anybody. So then it became like part of the routine. What they did on a Sunday evening is as they were setting everything up, they said, who's got the cat? And they would tie the cat up before the service started every Sunday evening to make sure that the cat wouldn't interrupt the service. And then the guru died. And another guru came out of this community to lead. And then that guru said, what we need to do, don't forget the cat. We need to tie up the cat. And then that guru died. And then another one came in. But then here's what happened. The cat died. And what did they do? They bought another cat to tie up because they didn't know why the original guru had wanted a cat tied up in the corner all the way through, but that's what he had wanted. So I think we need to ask questions about these things so that we don't end up metaphorically with some cats tied up in the corner. So today I'm talking about constructive music and I'm going to talk specifically about the role that we use music for on a regular Sunday here in church. So this is not about, you know, the use of instrumental music where we get, you know, Flick to play her cello in the background of a prayer or something. This is not about the use of recorded music or any of those other things that we might do as part of a church service here. This is specifically just around the use of music in the way that we would normally use it, singing some songs together as a community on a Sunday morning. While I was preparing for this, I dragged these books out of um, my bookshelf. The Art of Curating Worship by Mark Pearson and Curating Worship by Johnny Baker. If anybody is interested in that kind of wider use of creativity in a worship space, I'd really recommend both of these books. They are fantastic on that stuff. But yeah, I'm talking about the singing that we do, and I really should get on with it, because most of you will know that I am one of the people who leads the music here on a Sunday morning, and I was thinking yesterday, I realized that I've been doing that for more than 25 years now, 
For over a quarter of a century, I have been singing songs and playing a guitar in various places. I have played in churches up and down England and Wales. I have led songs like this in a makeshift barn in Romania that didn't have any electricity. And so when I turned up having lugged my guitar amp about two hours in 40 degree heat, I couldn't even plug it in. And I have led songs in the chapel in the Houses of Parliament. There's a picture which you can't see of that as well. And on a venue in Soul Survivor, the big festival, and loads of these types of things. And I've done it in prisons, and I've done it in loads of just really random places over the course of the last 25 years. And I tell you that not to impress you, because let's be honest, you'd be a bit weird if you found any of that impressive, wouldn't you? But I tell you that because it's just that Every one of those songs that I've sung in every one of those venues adds yet another idea into a talk like this. One of the other things that lots of you will know about me is that I'm a big football fan. Um, and about a year ago, I found myself in the London Welsh Centre near Euston on Grays Inn Road, which is where I go for every big Wales match, so I haven't got to watch it with English people. And... <laughs> I was sat there before the game kicked off with my mate Luke, and it was one of Wales's biggest games. It was a World Cup qualifier, one of our biggest games for decades and decades. And as we all waited, this packed room for this game to kick off, I was chatting to Luke, and I just saw on one of the screens in there, this old guy walking on the screen towards what looked like a makeshift stage. And I said to Luke, hang on, I think David Iwan is going to sing before the game. Now, David Iwan is a name that I'm guessing literally no one else in this auditorium has ever heard before. He is an old Welsh-language protest singer. He's in his 70s now. Um, and about 40 years ago, in 1983, after the general election, he wrote this protest song about Welsh independence and the Welsh language. It's called Ama Ohid. It means still here. And it's this song, this kind of backs-to-the-wall defiance song about Welsh nationalism and how we're going to fight back about by being taken over by all these English and all this kind of stuff. And the song has been taken up by the Welsh national football team over the last few years. One of the guys who plays is a big fan. He would play it in the dressing room before the game and the fans would start singing it. And now we do that before every game. And here was David Yuan before the biggest game we'd had in decades, walking onto the pitch to sing this song. Everybody else in the London Welsh Centre noticed. Somebody shouted at the bar staff. Everyone stopped talking and they turned the volume up. And he starts to sing this song that he has sung in pubs and clubs and Welsh language festivals in front of hardly anyone for 40 years. And now he's singing it in front of 30,000 people and millions of people watching on TV in our biggest game for decades. The chorus says, despite everyone and everything, we are still here. And as he sings this song, he starts singing the first verse and a few people in the crowd join in and he gets to the first chorus and most of the crowd is joining in. And we are in the London Welsh Centre and we are belting it out at the tops of our voices, the 500 people tucked away in this room. And then as he gets to the second chorus, and the noise is deafening in this stadium, they have a close-up of David Yuan, and he's crying. There are tears streaming down his face. 
we were in London, hundreds of miles away. But in that moment, I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. You know that tingle down your spine that music can give you. This is the power of communal singing. And I bet that loads of you have similar stories, probably not related to football. Singing together is powerful, isn't it? It can create emotion. But that is a problem for us, I think, sometimes on a Sunday morning. Because I could tell you other stories, stories about singing together in churches where I've experienced similar emotions and I've put it down to the Holy Spirit. That's a tough one, isn't it? How much of what we experience in churches is a genuine connection with God? And how much of it is a neurological, emotional response? There are PhDs written about this. Neuroscience and the psychology of charismatic worship, one of them was called, that I read this week. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to say I read the PhD. I read the title of a PhD <laughs> that was called Neuroscience and the Psychology of Charismatic Worship. I even read the abstract, which is like a hundred words, but um, in the spirit of honesty, I didn't mean to say that. Um, but I think that what can happen then in our enlightened post-deconstruction mindset is to use a very complicated theological term, we throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think we have the tendency to go too far the other way. So we attribute any emotion that we feel just to being exactly that, the emotion of communal singing. And I wonder then, if we don't leave any space for that nudge that might actually genuinely be the Holy Spirit speaking to us. So I think there's got to be a third way. I think we have to seek to try and find a level of spirituality in the songs that we sing, some form of connection with God through those songs. Otherwise, we might as well just sing anything. A few years ago, I went to the Sunday Assembly, which is the atheist church in central London. They had um, they got a lot of food donations in for the food bank, and they said to me, oh, do you want to come along? And you can just come at the end of the service and pick the food up and take it away with you if you want, because you won't want to come to, you know, to the actual service, because it's like, it's an atheist church. And I said, no, I'd love to come to the whole service. Thanks very much. That'd be great. So I went along. And basically, I don't know if any of you are aware of this, but it's meets somewhere in central London, can't remember where. And what they do is they basically run a church service without God. So it looks exactly like this. They sing some songs together. They have a guy who stands up and talks for 20 minutes. And, you know, it's basically the same. And then they have a, a short section for reflection and what they call thankfulness, which is basically the prayer bit. And they have said that they modeled it on a church service because they thought that the sense of community that you get in a church service was brilliant. And when we were there, we did sing some songs together. We sang Walking on Sunshine. Now, it wasn't very good, to be honest. Um, partly because they had brilliantly professional musicians, but they were clearly performers. They were used to singing to an audience, not leading a congregation 
in communal singing. So they just sang at us. And we had no idea whether they were going to repeat the verse or repeat the chorus or any of those things. And so it was very much like a going to a gig and singing along with a band kind of performance. I mean, I mean also partly because it was walking on sunshine at the end of the day. But if we are going to shut off the possibility that God can speak to us through these moments where we sing together, then we might as well sing walking on sunshine here as well. There's got to be a third way. How do we create something which is authentic, which is seeking to be genuinely spiritual, but isn't just about creating an individual emotional response, a feeling inside us, but something instead that sits more genuinely with the rest of our theology, with the rest of what we do here, not just on a Sunday, but through the week as well. This is Bishop John Robinson. He was Bishop of Woolwich in the 1960s. And in 1963, 60 years ago, he wrote this book called Honest to God. And in the book, he talks about what he thinks is the purpose of worship, which even though the language is a bit dated now, is still some of the best writing I've ever read on this topic. The purpose of worship is not to retire from the secular into the department of the religious, let alone to escape from this world into the other world, but instead it's to open oneself to the meeting of the Christ in the common, to that which has the power to penetrate its superficiality and redeem it from its alienation. Like I said, the language is a bit complicated, I guess, now 60 years on, but the purpose of worship is not to get away from the secular into some magic sacred space. It's not to get away from this world to go into some other world, but to open ourselves to meet Christ in the common. I think this is important. I don't know about you, but I've certainly experienced those kind of churches where the point of singing on a Sunday is exactly to escape from this world. When life is difficult, I come to church and I sing these songs because it takes me away from there. And I come to get this emotional experience which keeps me going for a week until I can come back the next Sunday and get that experience again. That is the opposite, I think, of what John Robinson is saying. I love this bit about meeting Christ in the common, meeting Christ in the everyday. We don't need fancy instruments. We don't need big PA kits. We don't need any of that. It's about coming together in whatever setting we are together and meeting Christ in the common. Lots of you will know that I used to volunteer for my dad's charity. We used to go to Romania every summer. And I remember being about 15 or 16, and we stayed with a family that had a piano in their living room, and my older sister plays piano. So she sat down at this piano, and somebody said, come on, Rage, play us a song. And she played an old hymn, thinking that it would be something that we would know and something that the Romanian churchgoers would know as well. And for the next half an hour or so, we crowded around this piano, a ton of people in one small living room, and we sang old hymns together, half of us singing them in English and the other half singing them in Romanian. It was a moment where I met Christ in the common and all it needed was an out of tune piano and people who were separated by language were joined by a common purpose. 
It's also important to say that meeting Christ in the common isn't a critique on the quality of music in a worship service. I remember someone telling me that any level of professionalism in church means that it is a performance and not worship to God. This is partly why I asked Mike to read Psalm 33, because of verse 3, which says, Sing to him a new song, play skillfully and shout for joy. If Gareth was here who plays the drums, he would tell you, as he has told me on number on numerous occasions, that he believes that his drumming is a gift from God. And when he drums, he uses that as his worship. I think it's also true, though, that some churches, I think, in my opinion, can go too far the other way, auditioning people to be in bands that play on a Sunday morning. I wonder if there's a third way here as well. It doesn't mean that anything goes, that everybody is in regardless of the quality of their singing voice or their level of ability. But even if they're not the greatest musicians, I think that if somebody is good enough that they don't distract the congregation from engaging in sung worship, to be honest, that's enough for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to play the bass here. <laughs> One of our core values is inclusion. I think our emphasis has to be on including people, whether or not they're good enough to pass an audition. John Robinson goes on to talk about the function of worship. So we had the purpose of worship, which is the why. And the function of worship is the what. What does worship do? Here's what he said. The function of worship is to make us more sensitive to these depths. The holy is the depth of the common. To focus, to sharpen, and to deepen our response to the world and to other people beyond the point of proximate concern, to that of ultimate concern. To purify and correct our lives in the light of Christ's love and in him to find the grace and power to be both the reconciled and the reconciling community. Again, flowery language, but the function of worship is to make us sensitive to the depths, to focus and deepen our response to the world and the people beyond those we usually care about, to correct our lives, but also to find the grace and power to be reconciled and reconcile everybody else to this community. What we do here on a Sunday morning, John Robinson is saying, should make us care more about those people we don't usually think too much about. And it should help us to find the grace and the power to reconcile people to God. There's also something important here about that last word on that quote, I think, community. Because this is a community thing, it's a communal thing, it's a collective thing, it's something we do together. Theologians talk about this concept called collective intentionality, which is the power of minds to be jointly directed, objects, matters of fact, states of affairs, goals or values. This is what we do here when we sing together. We come together with collective intentionality. When we get together with a single goal, it can be a powerful thing. So what does this mean for us practically then, for the songs that we sing? It means loads of things, but I'm just gonna pick up on two of them quickly this morning. Here is a quick test for us, okay? You ready? You have to answer this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound.
99% of churchgoers could have got easily one of those and probably two of those. I could have picked tons of examples from old hymns up to modern day things, from Graham Kendrick to Hillsong, where we could have not only finished the line but probably have quoted verses and entire choruses. Now, the reason I say this is there's a great benefit to that, but also some caution. I think we get our theology from songs much more so than we do from sermons. As much as I will stand up here and talk to you now, and I, you know, hopefully we'll get something from this as well, but we sing songs so frequently, so often that we learn the words, and I think we get our theology from that more so than we do from people like me standing up here and saying things like that. Now, the thing is, though, that we say that our church is progressive in its theology, right? One of the pillars of our theology, one of the things that we talk about all the time, I preached on it not more than a couple of months ago, is that we don't preach penal substitutionary atonement. We don't preach this idea of a, a wrathful God who kills God's son in order to make things right with humans. This is something we would never say in our sermons. We have entire sermon series where we talk about how we don't believe that. This is something we would never say in our prayers. It's something we would never say in any part of our church congregation. But on a Sunday morning, I think we regularly still sing words that we wouldn't say. This is the first lesson. Don't sing what we wouldn't say. Now, you will know that there are some songs which are just a bit too close to the bone, so we have vetoed them. As many of you will know, first ago was In Christ Alone, mainly, but not entirely, but mainly because of this verse. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. We, those of you who haven't been around for a while, we don't preach this idea of a wrathful God. We teach the idea of a loving God. We don't talk about original sin. We talk about original goodness because that's what it says in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. I won't go into that today. If you want to know more, come along to Being Human, starting on Thursday at 7.30 in the community space. Um, interestingly, this song was rewritten by the Presbyterian Church in America about 15 years ago. They wanted to change the words in the official Presbyterian songbook to this. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified instead of the wrath of God was satisfied. But the authors of the song, Stuart Townend and Keith Getty, they hold the copyright and they refused to allow this version to be published. And so the Presbyterian Church eventually just dropped it from their songbook. Now, we've often changed a few lines here and there, and I think doing it live on a Sunday morning is kind of less dodgy than maybe printing it in an entire official songbook, which you then send out to an entire denomination in the US. But we often sing things, I think, less so now, but we do sometimes sing things that we wouldn't say. How about this verse from a song that we do sing very often? How great thou art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, 
my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. There's not a lot of difference between that and in Christ alone, is there? And there are loads of other examples I could pick. Now, we are getting better at this, but I think that we will still, every now and again, sing things we wouldn't say. Stuff that we wouldn't say in our prayers, in our sermons, in kids' church, anywhere else. I think it's important to say this because we don't always get it right. Some of this stuff is an aspiration for us. It's where we're trying to go. It's where we're aiming at. We're still working at it. And those of us who lead the music on a Sunday, feel free to come and chat to us at the end of the service if you're unsure about any of the lyrics that we've used on that Sunday morning. And if you come across with song with, with decent theology about the cross, um, or care for the environment, or justice, or non-gendered versions of God, or any of that, then definitely come and talk to us. So the first lesson is that, don't sing what you wouldn't say. And the second is this, look outward. Back to John Robinson for one last time, then I will end. We've had the purpose of worship, which was the why. We've had the function of worship, which is the what. And now we have the test of worship, which I like to call the what now. What do we do now? John Robinson says, the test of worship is how far it makes us more sensitive to the beyond in our midst, to the Christ in the hungry, the naked, the homeless, and the prisoner. Only if we are more likely to recognize Christ there after attending an act of worship, is that worship Christian rather than a piece of religiosity in Christian dress. This is the test of a worship service. Does it make us more sensitive to Christ in the hungry, the naked, the homeless, and the prisoner? Only if the answer to that question is yes, is that Christian worship rather than religiosity in Christian dress. The songs we sing have to make us look outward. They have to make us more sensitive to seeing God in the hungry. Just as I end, in the Old Testament, there's a prophet called Amos. And his job basically is to call out the behavior of the people of Israel. They've gone away from being the people they're meant to be. They're not following God anymore. In chapter 2, he talks about them selling people into slavery and oppressing the poor. And Amos is saying that God is not happy with this. But despite all of this, the people are still going to church. And the hypocrisy of it all, that God is really annoyed about. Here are these verses from Amos 5. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. I think this might be the role of sung worship in a constructive church. It's about singing the words we preach, and it's got to get us looking outwards. It's not 
about making me feel some big emotional response. Although if we do feel what we think is the nudge of the Holy Spirit during those moments, we shouldn't run away from that or try and rationalize it away. But singing songs together has to make us more able to see Christ in the hungry, the naked, the homeless, and the prisoner, so that justice rolls on like a river because of the songs that we sing together, not like in Amos, despite the songs that we sing. Justice like free school meals for everyone, like we talked about earlier. Four million kids living in households short of food. That should not be happening. We talked about the families that just about miss out on free school meals. Do you know what the, do you know what the cutoff point is? The cutoff point is 16,000 pounds worth of income for an entire household. So if your entire household earns more than 16,000 pounds a year, you don't get free school meals for your kids. Imagine living in London on 16,500 pounds and trying to find 500 quid per child for free school meals on top of everything else. If our songs do not lead us to want to do something about that, we should stop singing them because they're the wrong songs. Justice like the community fridge that we talked about, where there are people going hungry and there are tons of food going to waste. If our songs do not lead us to want to volunteer, to do something about that, we should stop singing the songs because they're the wrong songs and there is no point in singing them. Justice like the fact that we talked about, the fact there's a 17.4 life, expect life expectancy gap between some of the houses of the poorest people in our community and some of the houses the richest people in our community 17.4 years difference in life expectancy if our songs do not lead us to want to do something about that they're the wrong songs and we shouldn't be singing them let justice roll on like a river because of what we do here and because of what we sing not despite it I'm going to end by reading that quote again from Paul Ricoeur. Beyond the desert of criticism, we wish to be called again. If you are one of those people who's given up on singing songs because of past experiences, try again. If you find it traumatic because of past experiences, speak to someone that you trust about that. Speak to me about that. Allow yourself to be called again. Know that this time it might be different. Don't focus on that internal emotional high that you can get out of it, but look outward. Allow these songs to make you more sensitive to the beyond in our midst, to the Christ in the hungry, the naked, the homeless, and the prisoner, and let justice roll like a river.